You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, depending on where you came in this morning in this uh, conversation that we've been having before getting started, which by the way, thanks for those of you who join us as, uh, as we're chatting and catching up and figuring out what's going on uh, in our lives and in the world around us. But um, yeah, depending on where you came in, you got a chance to see a couple of very important um, but very different realities. First of all, we have so much to be thankful for right now um, with the fast rollout of vaccines, um, particularly here in the United States. We've got a long way to go in the rest of the world. Um, but you know, the good news that LA County is opened uh, entirely, the state of California will be um, on the 15th. And um, that's that's just fantastic um, for accessibility for those who are willing and want to get vaccinated. Um, and then there's also so much that still needs healing and change. There's so much that uh, you know we still don't know about, and as Max and um, Desiree and several others have you shared, are frustrations with family and difficulties in you know kind of the, the polarizing political climate that we've been in for, gosh, a long time, but that seems like it's been so ramped up, especially over the last year. Um, there's so much healing that still needs to happen in our country. And there's still so many questions about how we get back to normal and have a safe space. But um, for all of that, all the new things that we need to, um, the new things that we're celebrating, the ways that we're still mourning and looking for a place forward. Um, I'm once again so thankful to be a part of this community in a space like this where we can talk open and honestly about those things and that you come and be a part of this, um, that we get to be hope with and for each other as we look towards what it means for us to kind of create a different space here in this world than what we've been given. Um, and so with that in mind, I'd love to open us this morning for our service with a um, call to worship. And it's a short one, but I think it really kind of um, embodies what uh, the kind of things that we're talking about here in very simple terms, what it means for us to be a community of, of hope and to be people of hope and transformation. So as we uh, typically do, feel free to unmute yourselves if you'd like, and um, I'll uh, read the parts that are not in bold and we'll respond together with the parts that are in bold. Would you join me as we open our service? <clears throat> From the dust of the earth, the Holy One breathes us into life. Through the breath of God, you're all connected. Shaped in her image, God formed us with a purpose to create, to, create, to serve, to tend, to love. 
that life may flourish in all its forms. May the spirit of the living God be manifest in us. Gracious God, this morning as we come together celebrating moving forward with vaccine rollouts, steps back to normal, but also still grieving the loss of what this last year has brought, not just with sickness and the loss of death, the people around us, but the things that we've missed out on, time with close relationships, those people that we've chosen to be our family, difficulties in relationships with family, political unrest, continued struggle for equality, and all the various things that means. And yet we are thankful because you call us to be a part of a transforming way of living. You are a creator and you call us to create. In Jesus, you came to serve and you call us to serve as well. <laughs> You've tended to the deepest needs of your people and brought differing communities together and you call us also to tend to those relationships. You are a God who protects and calls us to protect the most vulnerable and the least among us. And beyond everything else, you are a God that calls us into radical love. We give you this space as we seek and learn to be stewards create, serve, tend, protect, and love. Amen. How many of you are familiar with Anne Lamott? Anyone? A few of us in here? And I, uh, I really love um, what she does. I was introduced to her by um, Ashley, uh, of course, because most mystical things and, <laughs> and spiritual mysticism comes my way um, via Ashley initially. Um, but I was reading something of hers uh, earlier this week and I wanted to share a piece of it because I love the way that she talks about prayer. We've often in this community talked about the difficulties of what it means to engage with prayer in a kind of post-deconstruction faith. And as a mystic, she kind of doesn't answer all of the questions, but she opens exploration. So if you're not familiar with her, um, her, her stuff's great. I'm actually looking at a couple of her books for our next um, book club. But I wanted to share this piece with you instead of um, doing something different. This is just kind of um, her exploration and introduction of what she has come to believe prayer to be over the years. Um, so here are these words from Anne Lamont. I don't know much about God and prayer, but I've come to believe over the past 25 years that there's something to be said about keeping prayer simple. 
help, thanks, wow. You may in fact be wondering what I even mean when I use the word prayer. It's not, uh, it's certainly not what TV Christians mean. It's not for display purposes like plastic sushi or neon. Prayer is private, even when we pray with others. It's communication from the heart to that which surpasses understanding. Let's say it's communication from one's heart to God, or if that's too triggering or ludicrous a concept for you, to the good, the force that is beyond our comprehension, but that in our pain or supplication or relief, we don't need to define or have proof of or any established contact with. Let's say it's what the Greeks called really real, what lies within us, beyond the scrim of our values, positions, convictions, and wounds. Or let's say it's a cry from deep within to life or love. Nothing could matter less than what we call this force. I know some ironic believers who call God Howard, as in our father who art in heaven, Howard be thy name. Let's not get bogged down in who or what we pray to. Let's just say prayer is communication from our hearts to the great mystery or goodness, or Howard, to the animating energy of love that we're sometimes bold enough to believe in, in something unimaginably big and not us. We could call this force not me and not preachers on stage with a choir of 800, or for convenience, we could just say God. Sometimes the first time we pray, we cry out in the deepest desperation, God help me. This is a great prayer as we're then at our absolute most degraded and isolated, which means that we're nice and juicy with the consequences of our best thinking and are thus possibly teachable. Or I might be in one of my dangerously good moods and say casually, hey, hi person, me again, the princess. Thank you for my sobriety, my grandson, my flowering pear tree. Or you might shout at the top of your lungs or whisper into your sleeve, I hate you, God. That is a prayer too, because it is real, it is truth. And maybe it's the first sincere thought that you've had in months. We can pray for things. Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? We can pray for people. Please heal Martin's cancer. Please help me not be such an asshole. We can pray for a shot at life and having uh, in life, excuse me, we can pray for a shot at having a life in which we are present and awake and paying attention and being kind to ourselves. We can pray, hello, is there anyone there? We can pray, am I too far gone or can you help me out of my isolated self-obsession? We can say anything to God, it's all prayer. Prayer can be motion and stillness and energy all at the same time. It begins with stopping in our tracks or with our backs against the wall or when we're going under the waves or when we're just so sick and tired of being psychically sick and tired that we surrender or at least we finally stop running away or at long last we walk or lurch or crawl towards something or maybe miraculously we would just release our grip slightly. Prayer is taking a chance that against all odds in past history, we are loved and chosen. We do not have to get it together before we show up. In fact, the opposite may be true. We may not be able to get it together until after we show up in such a miserable shape. 
So prayer is our sometimes real selves trying to communicate with the real, the truth, with the light. It's us reaching out to be heard, hoping to be found by a light and warmth in the world instead of darkness and cold. Light reveals us to ourselves, which is not always so great if you find yourself in a big disgusting mess, possibly of your own creation. But like sunflowers, we turn towards light. Light warms and in most cases, it draws us to itself. This is all hard to articulate because it's so real, so huge, and yet beyond mystery. My three prayers are variations of help, thanks, wow. That's all I ever need besides the silence, the pain, and the pause sufficient enough for me to stop, close my eyes, and turn inward. May that be something wherever you find connection with in those words that brings hope or healing or at least being seen. Thanks, Bob. Um, now we will transition into our communion time. So if you haven't yet, please feel free to grab something. Um, whatever you have handy is what we'll do communion with. And as always, feel free to drop um, your elements in the chat if you feel so led to share. I'm just gonna do a um, brief reading here. Um, as we prepare for communion, we talk about a lot. Communion means a lot of different things for a lot of different people um, and a lot of different traditions. And we are a church of a lot of different people and a lot of different traditions or no tradition, especially around something like communion. So, um, um, I'm going to just read a more liturgical <clears throat> um, intro into this time uh, this morning, but hopefully you'll be able um, to connect with it and have this be really a point where we share in similar elements, uh, not the same these days, um, but as a reminder of our connectedness and how we are all parts of one body um, as the people of God. That's why we do this every week. Um, so hopefully you can meditate on that as I uh, read this intro liturgy. When Jesus sat at tables and broke bread with tax collectors, lawyers, rich elites, and poor peasants, he proclaimed that God's gracious love and abiding presence know no bounds. Through these occasions of sharing food, women and men experienced God and shared in God's kingdom, a kingdom where all are welcome, worthy, and invited. Lives are transformed and empowered, and the fruits of God's gentle justice bloom throughout all creation. We remember that Jesus fed 5,000 hungry people with five loaves of bread and two fish. At this miraculous meal, there was such an abundance of food that everyone ate until they were full, and there were still 12 baskets of food left over. We celebrate God's abundant care and solidarity revealed in this meal. We remember that Jesus joined a great banquet with Levi, the despised tax collector, and despite the complaints of some, Jesus welcomed Levi and invited him to repent and enjoy a fresh beginning at life. We celebrate God's transforming presence revealed in this meal. We remember that while sharing a meal with Pharisees, Jesus welcomed a woman viewed as an outsider 
As the woman anointed his feet with oil, Jesus declared her dignity before everyone at the meal. We celebrate God's inclusiveness revealed in this meal. At these meals, Jesus and the women and men disciples resisted the divisions, injustice, and violence of society. They lived out an alternative reality, the kingdom of God, a place of love, justice, and mutuality. Today, we celebrate these meals and ministries. We also recognize that not all people liked Jesus' ministry. In fact, for some people, it was scandalous. They said, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. As we know, Jesus's life became endangered. When his arrest seemed near, Jesus ate a meal in the upper room with his disciples, as he had done so many times before. He took bread, and after giving thanks to you, holy God, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, this time saying, do this in remembrance of me. I invite you to take what you have um, for the bread today. And after the meal, he shared wine, gave thanks and said, I will not drink from this cup again until I drink it with you in the kingdom of God. And in remembrance of that, I invite you to take the cup. The kingdom persisted, and it persists today through the many women and men who seek to be the resurrection community. <clears throat> Despite divisions, violence, and injustice in the world, God continually brings forth renewed hope for love, justice, and mutuality to and through each of us. Therefore, holy God, in the sharing of this bread and wine, we jo joyfully celebrate the hope-inspiring ministry and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Next, I um, believe Dan is going to share some announcements with us. Thanks, Max. A um, few things this morning. Um, we have philosophy on Thursday nights, 6 p.m. at this Zoom link. The gathering is going to be starting back up and Bob will be leading a discussion on the strangeness of the pandemic through art and film, which I don't know about you, but that sounds interesting at Wednesday at 7 p.m. Uh, Max is going to be coordinating a meal for Essencia to be delivered on the 29th, which I believe is two weeks from now. So if you happen to be available that day, you want to be involved and help out with that, just reach out to Max uh, if you're interested. And of course, just a weekly reminder that if you're experiencing any kind of hardship or um, if you have any kind of needs, we're happy to uh, discuss that with you, talk about your situation, um, reach out to leadership and, and we'll try to assist in, in any way that we possibly can. So that's it for, for announcements today. Gonna turn it over to Aaron. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Bob, I'm, I'm curious, will you be uh, covering the film uh, Contagion with uh, Jude Law and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow? Is, isn't she in there? Un unmute, Bob. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I, not specifically. Oh. Though that would be a great way to kind of do it. Uh, what I'm going to do, we're actually going to use um, a couple of videos 
um, that the Nerd Writer uh, put together. If you're not familiar with that channel, he is just a brilliant, brilliant kind of uh, guy putting these videos together about art um, in, I don't even know if I can describe it. They're just, everything he does is so not what I would typically be interested in and is unbelievably creative and original and super exciting. Anyways, we're gonna use a couple of his videos as kind of starting points for discussion over the next couple of weeks, which will be great. Okay, I was hoping for like Contagion, World War Z, you know, yeah. those kinds of, <laughs> anyway, oh, all right. Yes. Okay. So prayer requests, words of Thanksgiving, joys and concerns. Um, now is the time that we share what's on our hearts, um, what's going on in our lives. If you'd like to, you can always unmute, or if you're more comfortable, you can put it in the chat window and I'll do my best to see that and address it from there. But does anybody have anything they want to share this morning? Yeah, we have something we want to share. Cool. Uh, do you want to say it? Do you want me? <laughs> uh, so uh, it's we just to say it, we got engaged. <laughs> hey, yeah. congrats! Thank wow. You. Yeah, we we were kind of through this whole pandemic. It actually, uh, you know, brought us a lot closer, and it just kind of wow the deal and realized that it was you know gonna do this forever. And so yeah, now we're engaged, and yeah, things are good. <laughs> so we're thankful for that. Well, you know, uh, if you guys can grow closer during a pandemic. I mean, that's that's pretty that's good that's, yeah. that's pretty good yeah you, uh, you know you you've chosen the right person to jump into the foxhole with as they say yeah uh that's that's really great guys congrats um and uh, we celebrate this with you and and let's just you know pray a prayer a blessing on that and uh loving god we give thanks for this incredible report and just this this relationship that's been ongoing for a long time and just the next the next step in that and we just uh, pray a, a blessing over them, and uh, may they know uh, our love and your love and the support and love of their family and friends, and uh, may they just continue to grow closer together. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Yeah, thanks, thanks for that, sharing that. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, somebody else this morning has something they want to share, joys, concerns, anything. I think maybe we could um, say a prayer together for our various family members. Uh, as we got started today, we talked about how just a lot of people are resistant to the vaccine or just kind of buying into the conspiracy theories and the craziness of our culture on the, I'm, I'm talking obviously kind of like on the right, um, and people are just kind of, you know, lost in very dark, very, um, how do I put this, um, uh, very misleading and deceitful systems of thought um, that are frankly just like a disease all in itself. And many of those folks in our families and, and circle the friends and we love them and we care about them. And I think we need to have wisdom and how we approach them and discuss these matters and not be overly, um, I guess, uh, rageful or something like that. But let's, let's pray for them and pray for ourselves and our relationships with them. Loving God, we lift up those in our lives um, that are kind of lost in these systems of thought that are making them resistant to getting the vaccine, resistant to rational arguments, resistant to empathy, frankly, and, and to the truth, and that are just basically blind. Uh, we pray for just, I guess, um, eyes to be open, ears to be open, that hearts might be mended, that we might be given um, wisdom and the words and 
and just the empathy and the compassion um, we need in order to speak truth, um, I guess, in love to them. But we pray for those family members of ours that are kind of on the margins that are um, lost in these um, in these dark times. And we pray, um, we pray for their health and safety, but we pray that their hearts and minds might be open in Jesus name. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Um, with that, Max, I guess I'm going to hand it over to you. Um, we will uh, take some time watching a music video. One of my, uh, favorite bands. We've done a number of their songs um, back in normal times <laughs> at the church. Um, but as always, um, please feel free to use this time as meditative, um, just enjoying music, um, um, whatever you need it to be. It can be prayerful. You can just take a moment and relax um, and center yourselves. So let's you know, plan to do that here. I'll just share the screen. And hope I do it right. <clears throat> I think it kind of glitched, so I'm going to try again. Can you guys see that? <clears throat> I think it's just going real slow. Don't you worry, cause I'm there you're safe. 
safe And it's true, you'll never beat But you'll never break Cause nothing lasts forever Some things aren't meant to be But you'll never find the a uh, NPR Tiny Desk concert to not only remind you of, of what live music feel, feels like, but also what a bunch of people standing together feels like. Yeah, I, know, really. I know it's mixed emotions, but uh, if you ever uh, have the chance to see the Oh Hellos live, they are probably the most um, talented, entertaining show I've ever seen. So once, once concerts are real again, Highly recommend, but hopefully you enjoyed. Thanks, Max. Very cool. So I want to talk about something today that I've really wanted to talk about for a while. <laughs> and I've touched on it in brief before in different talks, but it deserves a talk all its own. It's called dialectics. Uh, I'm curious just to see a show of hands. Uh, anybody ever hear of dialectics before? The philosophical, um, I guess, school of thought. Oh, good. So nobody. Well, good. Well, you know, coming to Central means you get educated in a lot of ways, I guess. Um, but this is definitely pertinent to our lives in so many different ways. Um, and uh, it's called dialect, this thing called dialectics. Um, it really informs so much of my thinking about life and spirituality and, of course, Christianity. And I really think it could be helpful for you, too. So that's why we're talking about it today. Fair warning, you know, I realize this is kind of heady and abstract stuff, but it's definitely a topic worth putting your thinking cap on for. Uh, this is some uh, AP church this morning, maybe. <laughs> if there is an AP church, I don't know. Uh, so what is dialectics? What is it? Well, it's an academic term from the field of continental philosophy, which is a field of philosophy. Some describe it as a coincidence of opposites, a way of seeing things that are seemingly contradictory is actually deeply intertwined and reliant on each other, like atheism and theism, which we'll get into here in a few minutes, 
or like joy and sorrow, which we'll also get into. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a way of transcending the notion of opposites. Thinking dialectically means thinking more holistically and less narrowly or in simple binaries. It means embracing contradiction instead of resisting it. It means learning to live in the tension of competing ideas and seeing how they might be related and even harmonize and, and complement each other. It's about seeing how interconnected everything really is on a, on a deeper level. People who think dialectically are not just capable of understanding more, but in the realm of faith and spirituality, which is obviously we're gonna, where we're gonna take this today, um, such, such people who think dialectically are able to reconstruct something after deconstruction, I've, I've found. I think dialectics offers us a way forward when we get stuck in deconstruction. So that's why we're talking about it here. And I think it's, it's really helpful. And it's a foundational idea to a lot of what we talk about here. Uh, and it really does inform, it really informs a lot of different spheres of life. It's as if the universe itself is dialectical in nature. We see this in things like wave particle duality, uh, quantum entanglement, superposition, the idea that matter and energy are interchangeable, that a wave can be a particle and a particle can be a wave simultaneously, that particles can occupy multiple uh, places in space at the same time or simultaneously exist and not exist. Or think of a star like our own sun. The sun is actually a perfect example of the dialectical nature of nature. The sun's very existence is a unity of vitality and mortality, as the Anglican priest Don Cupid observes. The thermonuclear burning, which is the sun's living, is also and identically, it's dying. The, the fusion of hydrogen into helium, which is the sun's life, uh, if you will, it, it's what produces all of its light and heat, but this is also the very means of the sun's death. It will eventually burn out this way, not for another few billion years, but you know, so, so the sun's living is also and identically, it's dying. We might call this solar dialectics, but it's part of the greater realization that all life is dying life. There is no such thing as non-dying life. All life is a kind of dying life. And this way, death is not antithetical to life, but dialectically, what actually gives life to life. Animals must feed on each other, right, in order to survive, to reproduce and feed their young. Living things must decompose into soil, which, of course, feeds the plants, which the plants feed the herbivores, and the herb herbivores feed the carnivores, and the whole cycle just keeps going. In this way, death is not an evil thing, per se. Death is not a bad thing, per se, but dialectically, just as much a part of life as, as life itself. Death gives life to life. That's, that's a cosmological understanding of dialectics. Let's zoom in a little closer now and look at the human condition. A good example of dialectics on the human level can actually be seen in, um, surprisingly, in the Disney Pixar film, uh, Inside Out. Maybe, uh, who saw Inside Out? Just a quick show of hands. Probably more seeing Inside Out than know anything about dialectics. Good, good. Um, might surprise you that uh, Inside Out is a source of sophisticated theory, but it is. Um, spoil, spoiler alert, by the way, I'm gonna, it's been out for like six years, but I'm gonna spoil it. If you haven't seen it already, you probably don't care if I spoil it. So the characters in the film are emotions like joy, anger, fear, disgust, and sadness, right? These emotions are personified 
into these uh, cute little characters that live in this little girl's head named Riley. And they help her negotiate life, right? So Joy, the character Joy, in an effort to keep Riley happy, tries to get rid of sadness or, or eliminate sadness's influence with disastrous results, of course, right? The moral of the story is that joy and sadness learn that they need each other along with the other emotions like fear, disgust, anger. You know, this may be a children's movie, but it's actually premised on some pretty sophisticated theory, namely the, the dialectical relationship between joy and sorrow and how they're not polar opposites, but deeply dependent on each other. We only know joy by touching our sorrow. And we only know sorrow by touching our joy. When I look at my daughters, you know, enjoying life and, and laughing and playing together, I'm filled with joy, but only because I know that these moments won't last forever. So I have to, I have to cherish them while I can, right? There's a kind of sorrow to my joy. I, I feel so lucky to experience these moments. They, they fill me with gratitude because I realize nothing is guaranteed in life and nothing lasts forever. So for me to experience joy, you know, sorrow always has to be kind of part of it. Sorrow always has to be close by, you know, telling me to enjoy this or that and not take it for granted because everything is fleeting. In this sense, you know, joy is kind of sorrow deferred. In a similar way, grief, grief is really just love by another name. Maybe you've heard that before. We only grieve because we love. Grief is the price we pay for love. You know, maybe, you've, maybe you've heard that. These, these are the dialectics of our inner life, the dialectics of our emotions. Obviously, the, the advantage to understanding this is learning to accept difficult and painful emotions is not just okay, but necessary to be a whole and healthy person. It's to realize, you know, we're lucky to feel sad. We're, we're, we're lucky to, to feel sorrow. We're lucky to grieve. We, we should let ourselves grieve and feel sad so that we can also feel joy and love. You know, if we don't allow ourselves to feel sorrow, we're also limiting our ability to feel joy and, and vice versa. Now, we find this same kind of dialectical relationship in religion between belief and unbelief, faith and doubt, uh, atheism and theism. In a sense, atheism and theism are not polar opposites, but just two sides of the same coin. I like how Jack Caputo puts it. Atheism isn't the end of theology. Uh, atheism is the beginning of theology. We think atheism is like the end of God, but actually, in a way, maybe atheism is actually the beginning of God. This is because theology and belief doesn't begin from a place of certainty and direct knowledge of an invisible world, but from a place of uncertainty and unknowing. And it's an attempt to describe that which is fundamentally beyond our conception, i.e. God, right? Thus, unknowing and mystery is actually hard-baked into theology, faith, and religion, and is actually what, what gives life to or gives rise to theology and religion. Or think of it this way. To believe in anything is a tacit admission of one's doubt and unknowing. One doesn't believe in things like like gravity, because there's ample evidence for it. We may not understand gravity entirely, but we know it's real. We can measure it and test it in the lab. We, we got math for this stuff, right? Well, one doesn't believe in gravity, but God, God is a different matter. God is not something we can subject, we can subject to direct study and laboratory tests. 
God is invisible. We have no direct access to God. Thus, to believe in God is a tacit admission that unbelief and unknowing is part of the equation. In other words, you got to be a bit of an atheist to believe in God. Wrap, wrap your mind around that. Uh, here, here we see how belief and unbelief are always, always locked together in a kind of dialectical dance. And the advantage to understanding this um, means it sets us free from the so-called tyranny of belief. It sets us free. It liberates us from the anxiety, from the anxiety that comes from having doubts and feeling like we have to resolve them. I forgot who said it, but doubt is not the opposite of faith. Rather, certainty is. Certainty actually is the true enemy of faith. Certainty is what makes faith brittle and closed off. For, for faith to really be vibrant and give, uh, and give life to us, it must always be open to something new and growing and, and changing and never feeling like we've got God figured out. This is really where dialectics leads in the realm of faith and spirituality. Another helpful way to think about it is to think of it as the third step in a three-step process that goes thesis, antithesis, synthesis, all right? So thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So for example, a thesis statement would be, I believe in God. The antithesis statement then would be, I don't believe in God. The synthesis of those two would then be, I've learned to live in the tension of my belief and unbelief, and doing so gives me peace and also helps me understand things I didn't understand before. So dialectics is the synthesis of both the thesis and the antithesis in a variety of different ways. Or, or think of this in terms of deconstruction and reconstruction, right? The first stage in our spiritual development is construction, right? The construction of a belief system, you know, conversion to a religion, we'll say, right? The, the antithesis stage is the deconstruction of that belief system, right? The skepticism, the questioning. Um, this, the synthesis stage is a reconstruction, but what's reconstructed is not the original construct, right? The original beliefs, but something new that is informed. It's informed by what came before, right? It includes aspects of, of the thesis and the antithesis, right? It includes aspects of what came before, but it is also truly new and different. And it's that third stage, the, the, the synthesis stage, the reconstruction that is truly dialectical in nature and is the most rewarding place to be spiritually, in, in my opinion. And interestingly, I think we find this same model, the same uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis model in the Christ story, namely with Christ in his incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. The thesis is the incarnation, right? God is with us, Emmanuel. The antithesis is God crucified, God is dead. The synthesis is the resurrection, but the resurrected Christ bears the scars of the crucifixion and is therefore the synthesis of both the life and the death of God. And the synthesis is only fully realized when we realize, as the body of Christ, Paul called us, that we must embody both the life and death of God now to make God real. And it's this dialectical understanding of the gospel that I want to share with you uh, because it's really been what's helped me reconstruct something uh, out of my faith. For, for me, Christ's death represents, among other things, 
the death of the all-powerful deity beyond, which is, which is terrible news at first. The death of the God who can intervene and save the day with supernatural power if we just pray and believe enough. That, that God is crucified for me, I think. And, and, and that God is shown to be weak and powerless in the world. His power is not like the worldly power of, of meeting power with power or meeting force with force, meeting strength with strength. His power is the so-called weak power of love, which is real power, but a kind of power that the world often doesn't think of as real power. But again, this is a, this is a kind of dialectical affirmation of both atheism and theism, because in this line of thinking, a certain God is declared as dead or as having never existed in the first place, right? The, the classic all-powerful God of religion, the, the traditional God of theism, as it were. But in his wake, another God is affirmed or resurrected. And this is a God of love and justice. This God is not so much a being, but the being of beings, uh, the essence of being, something that undergirds life and existence and is found in the so-called depths of life, in, in the experience of awe and wonder uh, at a star-filled night sky or at, at an oceanscape. It, it's, it's found in the experience of loving and being loved. Here we find the sacred. Here we find the, the, the divine dimension to life. Here we find God, in, in my experience, in my opinion. But again, th that is a dialectical way of holding both a kind of atheism and theism, a way of affirming both the cross and the resurrection. And for me, it's been the most freeing and, and life-giving understanding of the gospel I found. And, and I didn't make it up. I didn't come up with this. It's part of a tradition called the radical theology tradition. Um, but it works for me because it doesn't violate my critical faculties, <laughs> uh, for one, but it also teaches me that I cannot escape my responsibilities in the world. I cannot escape my responsibilities by responding to the world's problems with thoughts and prayers. I must act. We must act. God is depending on us. No one is coming to the rescue. God wants us to know that we must rely on each other. God, it seems, would have it no other way. And, and this also teaches us to face reality with courage, just as Christ faced the cross with courage. Christ shows us that by giving ourselves over to love, giving ourselves over to the love of life and the love of others, which is a way of giving ourselves over to God, we can face anything with courage, including death itself. For love is stronger than death. The cross is, is a symbol of life as it really is. It's reality. It's death. It's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross is no guarantee that everything's going to work out okay or that God is in control. Rather, the cross is simply life as it is, godless, chaotic, unfair, unjust, perplexing, and confusing. But herein lies the dialectical power of the cross for me. By embracing reality with courage, we find serenity. By embracing reality with courage, we find serenity. We find life. We find that we are stronger than we think. As, as James Baldwin once said, we are capable of bearing a great burden. Once we, once we realize that that burden is reality and arrive at where reality is. But religion, unfortunately, often keeps us from arriving at where reality is. Religion, unfortunately, um, functions as an escape from reality. But the cross calls us into a direct confrontation with reality and is therefore dialectically both terrible and liberating.
this to me is the dialectics of the gospel and what makes it as powerful and life-giving as it is. And I hope that makes sense. I hope that I didn't completely leave you in the dust. I'm, I'm curious to hear uh, what made sense to you, what didn't make sense, uh, what did you like about that, what, what don't you like about that. Um, we've, we've covered a, the dialectics of nature, we covered the dialectics of our emotions, we covered your dialectical theology. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that. Um, anybody want to respond, react, criticize? <laughs> You can always put stuff in the chat if you'd like to. Uh, I mean, this is the first thing that I thought of and it kind of, I don't know, when you, when you mentioned dialectics, it just brings up the time that we're living in now i guess how there's just kind of these two opposing thoughts that are coexisting at the same time and it's interesting that you bring up how i don't know you were saying something like they were both they're both good and bad they both are you know work together they both are truthful and so it's just taking that mind frame and thinking how kind of the situation we're living in now where you have people who are like we were talking earlier about the vaccine yeah you know, people who are wanting to get better to move to align with science or to align with compassion and some other people are kind of fighting against that but um i don't know there's this existence between the two polar thoughts yeah but framing it and kind of what you were preaching today it just kind of sparks like huh i wonder what that means <laughs> You yeah, know. I mean, maybe maybe dialectics, dialectics can help us find some common ground with folks who are very who think very differently than us by, you know, trying to you know kind of figure out what are their 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 concerns, what what has brought them to that place, maybe what trauma or what fears are driving them, you know, um, yeah, think thinking thinking like that, you know, politically because um, a lot of this the vaccine issues are driven by politics, right? Um, there is a kind of political dialectic that we can pay attention to, right? We're, but we, we can think outside the binary of conservative and progressive, mm -hmm. in a sense, by realizing that both conservative and progressives can be sort of utopian in their thinking, right? The conservatives mm -hmm. want to return to a sort, of, a sort of former utopian era, right? MAGA, right? The 1950s, get back, let's, let's get back uh, to when America was great, right? The conservatives are kind of utopian about the past and progressives are sort of utopian about the future, right? We can, you know, achieve this, this, this world where everything's gonna be great and everything's, everyone's gonna be equal if we just elect the right people or do X, Y, and Z. But we can, we can understand, you know, dia the dialectic move would then be to kind of not be conservative or progressive in your thinking, but realize that any kind of utopian thinking about life in the world is false, right? And really the best we can do or hope for is find some, some peace and some joy, some hope in the struggle to, for a better world in itself. So in a sense, the goal isn't to become a progressive and the goal of course isn't to become a conservative, but the goal is to just you know kind of find a sort of way forward in the struggle for a better world in and of itself. And uh, that would be kind of like the dialectical position. So I don't know, maybe maybe that helps us negotiate waters with our, with our family members, but there is something dialectical there in, in, in the political as well. 
yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Louise. Um, yeah. Other thoughts, re reactions to that? Um, David asked, Aaron, do you have any text rec you recommend if we want to dive deeper into dialectics? It's super interesting and I want to do some reading. Yeah. Um, and honestly, the, the reason why I'm even bringing this up today is because if you dive into the work of Peter Rollins or, or Caputo or um, Slavoj Zizek, um, if you, you know, you're really diving into dialectics. That's all grounded in a kind of dialectical worldview, an under, dialectical understanding of faith and spirituality and the human condition. Um, you know, honestly, Slavoj Zizek, if you just go onto YouTube and just type in Zizek, Z-I-Z-E-K, and dialectics, it'll bring up talks of his where he gets into that. That might be the best thing. Um, if you go on Amazon, you know, honestly, read, if, you, if you're reading Peter Rollins or John Caputo stuff, you're reading dialectics. But yeah, YouTube, you know, you can, you can go there. Um, <clears throat> something I was thinking about was um, the, the like linguistic perspective of this too. And I don't remember, it's some, it's some critical theory. I don't remember what it is, but it's the idea that um, meanings of words don't exist without the opposite meaning. So a good example in, in the Bible is that the prayer, uh, I do believe help my unbelief that yeah. uh, by, by stating, I have belief, you're also stating the existence of unbelief and one yes. can't exist without the other. Um, and so that even goes to the atheism theism thing that it's not just in action that they kind of uh, like predate each other. It's that they um, like theism can't exist without something else, which is not theism. Um, yes. So yeah, I just like that. I like the linguistic side of this too. Yeah, no, those are really good. I'm so glad you get that. Cause I really, you know, part of what I want us to do with this topic um, and honestly, it informs so much of what I say on Sundays and what we talk about here in deconstruction and reconstruction uh, is I want it to make us more light on our feet, basically able to kind of live in the tension of belief and unbelief and to kind of suspend the dichotomy of atheism and theism and not really, you know, have to like locate us, locate ourselves on that spectrum and not have anxiety about that. Because as you well said, Corey, you know, to believe in God is to actually, it's a, again, it's even as I said, it's a tacit admission of one's unbelief and unknowing. And that's, that's not just okay. That's wonderful because it's, it's about living into a mystery. It's about embracing a mystery and making peace with that, that, that wonderful side of life and existence that is fraught with mystery and wonder and awe. And we can live into that, I think, and find peace in that and serenity. And that is in itself a kind of deeper faith, right? Finding that kind of serenity in, in the midst of one's unknowing and, and doubt is a kind of deeper faith. In fact, um, and I, I, some actually talk about that as being what it really means to trust in God, so to speak, to, to trust in the, in the mystery and the awe and the wonder and, and the beauty of, of life and creation uh, itself, that that's kind of a deeper faith, a faith beyond belief, as, as Peter Rollins would say, that's, that's faith beyond belief. And that not just, not just amazing faith, but faith beyond just mere belief. Does that make sense? You hear that kind of double meaning there, uh, faith beyond belief. I love that kind of, but that's dialectical, right? Um, I don't know. Are you guys comfortable with atheism? <laughs> are you comfortable kind of saying that, hey, you got to be a bit of an atheist to go here, right? You got to be, you got to kind of embrace your inner atheist a little bit. 
Um, I, I don't know, for me, that word atheist is often kind of triggering because I grew up being told that like, you know, atheism is like satanic and um, I don't know. I, I hope that we're able to blur atheism and theism enough here to kind of get rid of the anxiety around that. But other, other thoughts, reactions? Yeah, sorry, again, uh, when you talk about being atheistic, I think the thing that always uh, stuck out at me was that line when Jesus is on the cross, it's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think that growing up, I had never really understood that. And it always kind of confused me because it just felt so contradictory. But I don't know, hearing that and hearing you talk, it kind of lines up. Again, I think people are saying in the chat, like, faith is strengthened by doubt. And yeah. so kind of living in those two areas where you feel one thing and then it strengthens the other, then you feel one thing and then strengthens the other. And you're just kind of like bouncing back and forth, just creating like. Well, a, and nothing's definite, right? Yeah. Like everything's a process. So like the, you know, our theism, that's a, that's a process, nothing set in stone atheism. I mean, I don't know. I just, I don't think anything's like. Yeah. It's like, it's like a rock rolling between two places. Like it's constantly in motion, but it's yeah. creating this energy and wave that is kind of life, you know, like, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think Louise, you know, that understanding of the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the way that, well, the early church, meaning around Paul's time, they didn't have the gospels yet. Those actually came after Paul's writings. But the early church, we're talking about these devout Jews that became followers of, of Christ. The way they understood the crucifixion was really about the death of the God of religious law. It was, it was literally kind of atheistic for them because think about what it would have taken for these devout Jews to stop keeping kosher, for them to stop practicing the so-called eternal rite of circumcision, for them to stop going to temple and making ritual sacrifices. Think about what that would take. It really was deconstructive for them this idea of God being crucified, it wasn't like pure atheism, and I'm not advocating for pure atheism here either, but it was about the death of a certain understanding of God. It was about the death of the God of religious law and the resurrection of a God of pure love, right? Because we find in the early church writings, like in 1 John 4, God is love. And Paul writes in Romans that love fulfills the law. I mean, that was kind of the radical deconstructive element of the early church that we're actually, I think, trying to, I guess, recapture here. Um, but, you know, the crucifixion always has to be reinterpreted anew, afresh in every generation of Christians. And for us, the question is, what does it look like today in the modern world for us to live into the, for us to affirm the death of the, the death of God and also affirm the resurrection? What does that look like? And for me, I think it looks like kind of living into, kind of embracing doubt and unknowing in one's faith and, and learning to make peace with that and affirm kind of this, this God of love and justice and this God of beauty and awe and wonder and a kind of mystical sort of understanding of, of the divine rather than a supreme being on high that is magical and can intervene if we just pray enough and believe enough and all those kinds of things that we're raised on. So that's where I go with it. But I just want to make clear that this understanding is really predicated on the earliest church's understanding of the, the crucifixion of the God of religion. It really, for them, was about the crucifixion of the God of religion. And it still is for us. Other, other reactions, thoughts about this stuff? Oh, I just wanted to say that 
you know, talking about this, I feel like one reason why it's hard for people to understand the concept of dialectics is because I think we're taught to fear one side of, you know, the two things that are diametrically opposed. So remember, like um, failure and success, for example, I remember I had a professor in economics that said, um, you know, practice doesn't make perfect, perfect practice makes perfect. So, Beautiful. I mean, yeah, it was, it was motivating, but also like you need to fail in like proper fail in order to <laughs> like none of the perfect practice don't exist, sister. It's you've got to fail first, right? That's how business people, you know, work. That's how people work. Like it's, it's, you know, so to fear failure, I think is setting people up for that. Exactly. Actually, you need to lean into it in order to get the success, you know, no, no rain, no flowers sort of thing. Yeah. That's it, man. And you, and you nailed like the emotional payload to that. It's like, because we're taught to like the other side or, you know, the other side of the dichotomy is just, it's often terrible. Failure is awful, right? I mean, who likes failure? It's so hard to kind of get ourselves into a place where we're able to kind of radically accept failure or doubt and unknowing or unbelief, you know, or, you know, these or sorrow and sadness or grief, you know, it's, it's hard to like, because you're never fully okay with it. It's not, it really isn't the other thing unless it is somewhat problematic still right and troubling so yeah it's about embracing that anxiety as best as possible i guess uh, yeah really good thoughts Vinny. randy comments reminds me of jesus healing on the sabbath it's like god breaking his own laws yeah uh, the other example of women the woman caught in adultery the law said to stone her jesus is fulfilling the law a type of dialect yeah so jesus is absolutely I think doing that with the law, you know, yeah, that's good. Other thoughts? Does this produce anxiety? You know, how are you feeling with this? How is this, uh, where's, where's your head going with this? Well, for me, I guess um, I'm not um, <clears throat> um, threatened by the word atheist, I guess, but I'm just kind of confused how, you know, not believing in God and believing in God kind of go together. <laughs> they seem like two polar opposites. It's just a little um, confusing for me right now. Sure, man. Yeah, yeah. And it always comes down to which God is being believed in and which God is not being believed in, right? So, I mean, it gets even more complicated depending on which God we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I think when most people talk about, I think atheism in general today in the West is mostly about disavowing or not believing in that kind of, you know, supreme being on high, the kind of anthropomorphic projection of God, right? That, that, that sort of, you know, again, that supreme being, but there's lots of other understandings of God even in like Western history that are not so anthropomorphized, I guess is word I'm looking for, right? Um, where God is understood as less of a being and more of like an energy. And atheism isn't really, uh, in the West at least, not really trying to attack that God because um, first of all, how do you do that? But also, you know, most atheists are coming at it from, you know, every anti-fundamentalist perspective. And I affirm that, I'm very clear. You get the atheism you deserve. Uh, you know, you know, we deserve a certain kind of atheism. Uh, in fact, a certain kind of atheism is the proper theological response to certain gods. You know, people who say, you know, if we just pray and believe enough, 
God will clear the pediatric oncology ward at the hospital down the street. Well, no, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. Um, we, and believing in that God or invoking that God and teaching people to believe about that God, I think is actually really harmful. Um, you know, I, I think there's actually something really destructive about teaching people to believe in that God. We, atheism is the proper theological response, actually, to that God. But um, I think we can, and I want to encourage you, Randy, um, theistically here now, in, in saying that I think a kind of other understandings of God that are, frankly, more rewarding um, can be found. Again, this, the kind of more mystical understandings of God as a presence, a kind of divine presence in our lives that, you know, it fills us with awe and wonder. And, you know, it's about engaging with the beauty of life and loving and being loved and, and experiencing life in its depths. This is a kind of Holy Spirit presence um, that we, we can live into. There's so much about life that is that is frankly mysterious. Consciousness is so incredible, right? And um, we're discovering new and fascinating things about it all the time that I think kind of lean into a kind of magical side of life that, that, that we're not about trying to, you know, strip, disenchant the world. I'm not trying to say we, we should need to pull out the, you know, to disenchant the world, but I think certain gods need to die uh, in order for us to kind of mature and grow up and to find frankly better gods. And um, I'm, I'm deeply affirming of God is what I'm trying to say. Um, and, and even I think, uh, you know, even, even atheists who are basically atheists about that supreme being God, that one God, are often, I think, very affirming about the mystery of life and the wonder of that and the beauty of that. And they wouldn't call that God, um, but they're just as affirming as a more mystical person would be um, of, of these ideas. So I don't know if that helps, Randy. What are your thoughts about that? Um, could like um, the term higher power? Yeah. Instead of just like a God like Jesus or Muhammad or Allah, just the phrase like you were saying about energy, it's kind of an energy that's above all through us and in you all. Um, like when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Yeah. Not something out there, um, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I think that's, that's really good. I, I like that. Hmm. And um, the type of God that says um, <clears throat> you can pick up snakes, you won't get hurt, and um, you know, like if you jump off a cliff or something, God will stop it, or you know that type yeah. of yeah, yeah, the the kind of God that says don't call don't call the ambulance, just pray. Yeah, yeah, uh, th that God's really dangerous. <laughs> yeah, the, that that supreme being creates supreme problems. We should say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I was raised on that God, right? And so many of us were. And that's why I think that God is actually what's driving more people away from the church today than so-called atheism and leftism. You know, a lot of the evangelicals love to blame the atheists and the secularists and the, and the leftists for, you know, emptying the churches today. No, I think, I think the evangelicals and the fundamentalists are the ones really doing that. Uh, it's, you know, the, the, that, that, that God, that unbelievable God that they say you got to believe in and not doubt, right? And the way that they've linked, of course, Christian theology with with politics of the right. They're driving people out of the church. It's not the atheism, um, you know, so to speak. But anyway, um, yeah, and Randy, I just want to say that I, I think whatever God you you believe in, I think it's important to hold on to whatever you believe like this, you know, lightly, so and not in an idolatrous way. You know, as soon as God becomes an escape from a direct confrontation with the frailty of life, with 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 the problems of life, as soon as 
whatever we believe about God becomes an escape from um, confronting death and the, and frankly, the unknowability of death and, and the finality of death, perhaps, you know, as soon as God becomes an escape from that or a way of covering over our suffering, saying it's all going to be okay because God's going to make sure it's all okay. As soon as it becomes that, it becomes sort of, um, I think, unhealthy again. We, we must confront life and reality and embrace life and reality as it is to find a kind of deeper serenity. And I, and I think whatever we believe about God, um, we have to make sure that our God is helping us do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, other thoughts. Good stuff, Randy. Dialectics is interesting. Mm. Yeah, Lakin, that post I, I quoted from Dietrich Bonhoeffer seems to encapsulate all this. You know, still, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, Bonhoeffer was deeply dialectical. Yeah, I picked up a couple books on mysticism and I got one called Dante's Road, The Journey Home for the Modern Soul. Cool. It talks about things like that and um, the mystery of God and the not knowing and- Yeah. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that when you're, when you're done reading it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It has like at the end of each chapter exercises like you know, reading certain scripture and reflecting or when have you been at your most creative and, you know, your most, um, best experiences, creativity and things like yeah. that. <clears throat> Very cool. Good stuff. Any other thoughts today? Uh, David wants to know, Randy, what's the name of that book? Um, Dante's Road. I'll type it in. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm reading a book I want to recommend too that's kind of helpful in this department. It's called The Supernatural, Why the Unexplained is Real. Oh gosh, my screen's not helping me. But um, The Supernatural, Why the Unexplained is Real. It's um, trying to, in a very, I think, responsible way, trying to redefine what we mean by supernatural and trying to um, make room for um, frankly, the unexplained and, and perhaps the paranormal in our lives again, uh, in a way that doesn't uh, mean throwing out our critical faculties, but a way of, I think, um, keeping our feet firmly planted on the ground, while also realizing that the universe is incredibly strange, and we can kind of still live in an enchanted world in some ways, which I think is fascinating. Um, and I want to encourage you all with that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so it's not all doom and gloom and materialism here <laughs> anyway uh that's the trouble with dialectics um good stuff everybody yeah, any, other th any other thoughts yeah randy interesting that the guy that wrote this book and a lot of other people getting into mysticism were once you know conservative christians you know raised you know kind of like you are and they even instead of like totally denouncing god they're um getting more into the experience of God and the mysteries of yes. God. Yes, yes. As opposed to such a rigid um, uh, denominational type thing, you know. That's the reconstruction. I think that's where we reconstruct. That's good. Yeah. Well, I hope you're encouraged, everybody. Um, thanks for being here. You can hang out and chat. 
otherwise, we're formally dismissed. And uh, congrats again to Louise and Sarah. Do you guys do you guys have a have a date set? Um, no. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> That's cool. Nothing yet. No, but we both have rings, so we didn't want it oh, yeah. to just be ah, yes. marked too. We're marked. We're both marked. Yeah. The mark of the beast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, real, yeah. real quick, one more question about that. So do you have like an engagement story to share? Any, <laughs> anything? How did it happen? Yeah. So, God, how, how do we Well, start? this is my grandmother's ring. It's something go. we've been talking oh. about for a long time, you know? So yeah, we, I knew it. We were both on the same page, kind of. We drove out to Texas because in uh, her family... They, you know, quarantined for a couple weeks. And tested. And tested and everything. So we got there and uh, her mom came to me and she says, I have uh, my mother's ring, her grandmother's ring, and she has a very close relationship with her grandmother. And I was like, that sounds perfect. And it just seemed like all the stars lined up uh, for it to happen, you know, because we were seeing her family and then we we're going to see my family. And I basically did it right at New Year's. So right when the three, two, one fireworks are going out, uh, I get down on one knee and, you know, I ask her right there and then with fireworks and that's And all it. the fireworks are for me. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Love it. it Everybody loves hearing a good engagement story. <laughs> and usually she can always tell when I'm throwing surprises at her, but this time. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. No idea. yeah so it's good. I only had to do that one time and I nailed it. So now I don't have <laughs> Well to... done, Louise. Thank you. Well, well done. So. Yeah. yeah, that's not easy. I know that's not easy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, now we're we're kind of slow on figuring out the wedding plans, but we'll now that things are starting to open up again, we're like, oh, I guess we got to start planning now. <laughs> yeah, very so. exciting. So happy for you guys. It's awesome. Thank, thank you. you. Thank everybody for your support. Yeah, appreciate thanks it so much. Yeah. Mm. yeah.